This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Book Series in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Brenna Moore. I'm a professor of theology at Fordham University. And today we will be talking to Piotr Koshiki. Piotr is an associate professor of history, the editor of eight books and the author of the book Catholics of the Barricades, Poland, France, and Revolution, 1891 to 1956, published uh, by Yale University Press. And this is the book that we will be talking um, with Piotr about today, and we're really pleased to have him with us. Um, Piotr, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brenna. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Great. Um, So I so enjoyed reading your book. I learned such a great deal. As you know, I'm a scholar of mostly French and global Catholicism to an extent, but this world of Polish Catholic and French Catholic exchange was entirely new to me. Um, And one of the things that first initially struck me about the book that I think would strike any reader about the book, uh, and I'm sure you've been asked this before, but it's your vast reach of sources, oral, archival, Polish, French, French, English, religious, and not only religious, but very, very theological, you know, ecclesial, mystical, but also some very political Marxist material. So I wondered if you might begin our conversation today by telling us a bit about yourself, your background, especially that enabled you to have these scholarly skills um, to be able to read not only those different languages, but be interested in that different cultural material. Maybe you can tell us a bit about your background, your cultural, religious, um, geographic, family background as we get started. My pleasure. Yeah, so thanks for asking about my background. I grew up in Baltimore. I was born and raised in Baltimore, actually. I grew up partly in Poland. I always have a hard time explaining this because I counted, I think, when I was in undergrad, and I realized that I'd spent about a third of my life in Poland, but never did I live continuously in Poland for longer than half a year at a time until I was in grad school actually. Uh, When I I moved to Poland for the reason that so many of us do, we want to live where we can do our research. And and, uh, I didn't have a family situation yet that would dictate otherwise. But my background is basically as a kid of an academic. My mom was a professor at Hopkins Medical School when I was uh, in elementary school, middle school. She retired when I was about to go to undergrad. But in fact, I really identified a lot with the kind of academic background that, that, that we live now. That being said, I grew up really in a network of international academics based in Baltimore and D.C. All my parents' friends, I think my parents had very few U.S.-born friends. And for that reason, my social world was always really international. And my family, which my grandparents, especially in Poland, I would see every summer and really for three to four months, some years uh, as a kid and then as an undergrad also. My center of gravity was Poland. My first girlfriends, not just Polish, but I met them in Poland and <laughs> and, and personal and professional uh, trajectories intersected for me. I also went through a bit of a searching for religious faith when I was an undergrad. And that actually dovetailed for me with the discovery of uh, an academic interest in Roman Catholicism that 
allowed me to explore and sort of there was this feedback process that developed for me between my own personal seeking of faith and my hopefully rigorous intellectual interests. So the first project I ever did research-wise, I was 19 years old. I went to Italy. I went to Poland. I got a nice, very generous grant for a 19-year-old from Stanford that bankrolled a whole summer for me in Europe. And I started by doing oral history. So I got experience very early interviewing bishops and interviewing former prime ministers and interviewing a wide variety of Polish intellectuals who had played a role from the Catholic side in making sure that Poland would join the European Union. At that time, it hadn't yet joined it was going to join, and they were trying to make sure that it was going to happen. And honestly, that interest never went away. I became more interested in the politics of Roman Catholicism from the European side. I studied Italian and French as an undergrad. I mean, I since picked up other European languages that I use in a more passive way, but I went to graduate school intending to be a historian of France and Italy. And it wasn't really until I was in grad school having done a a, a Fulbright in Poland, that I found I had so much material on the Polish side of things that my own instincts and also my the advice I received from mentors was to try to link Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And that's really where I consider myself to be located intellectually at a crossroads in so many ways, um, methodologically and geographically. I find that you know since I, I got a job, a tenure track job and got tenure, I more often am forced to choose. And I've been pushed more in the Eastern Europe direction in terms of how I practice the craft, but I've always identified and I advise undergrads and especially grad students also at the uh, in the domain of French history. So I genuinely think of myself as a historian of Eastern and Western Europe, but in a global perspective. And the, thank you for, for what you said about the languages and the sources. It's it's nice yeah, to hear. It's wonderful to see, you know, all of that that sort of biographical history um, come come to fruition in this incredible academic uh, academic work. And I do think that, you know, I have advised graduate students similarly to when I find out they have an interesting cultural background or some unusual language skills based on some far from far-flung grandmother somewhere to figure out how to use that in in some way. And it's always, you know, I think it's so often to their benefit. So wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, So before diving into the discussion of Catholics on the Barricades, the the details of it, I wondered if we could move uh, move, um, from the biographical to the topic of this. How did you become interested in the kind of Polish and French Catholic collaboration around these issues of understanding, kind of rethinking about politics, communism, Marxism, even the church itself in the 20th century? So when I was writing my PhD thesis, I liked to joke to friends at the time that uh, I kept writing and writing and writing, and I never finished chapter one, that the entire dissertation was effectively what I had expected to be the background. Uh, believe it or not, when I when I was starting the actual PhD research, I had planned to write a dissertation about 1956 to 1980. Now, having read the book, you know that I stopped in 1956. A lot of my articles and volumes I've edited and subsequent research. I, I, I wrote an article I'm really proud of for the journal Slavic Review about 1968. I've written a lot about the 1980s, but I found quite simply while going to archives, because there there's a lot of archival material I didn't use in this actual book, uh, in Belgium, in Germany, in Italy especially, and uh, also various archives in the U.S. and the U.K., there was just too much that hadn't been explored about a lot of the intellectual origins. And for me, trying to lend coherence to an unwieldy, or what felt at the time still, to be an unwieldy set of activist and intellectual networks involved trying to dig deeper into what all the people I cared about on the Polish side were actually reading. And even if they didn't know French, they were reading French texts principally in translation. They read other things too, especially starting in the 1960s 
more and more uh, German and Italian. Obviously, in the 1940s and 50s, that would have been taboo for a variety of reasons in the early communist period uh, behind the Iron Curtain, because these were the fascist past countries, right? So even even though East Germany was nominally, quote unquote, on the right side from the, the uh, Soviet perspective after World War II, France was culturally neutral in some ways and, and politically too. I mean, we know under, under de Gaulle, uh, both... Let's more more so in the Fifth Republic, but even in the in the early Fourth Republic, there was this attempt to try to toe both sides of the curtain uh, politically, and I think that that really made a difference because it was okay to scratch beneath the surface and keep scratching and scratching and scratching, and to go back to whether it's uh, the modernist crisis of the early 20th century or to the founding of so many Thomist faculties, Francophone, especially Thomist faculties across Western Europe. And even though this was half a century or more removed chronologically from early communist Poland and uh, certainly geographically and experientially removed, uh, especially in the second half of my book, we're talking about generations of activists born in the late teens and maybe into the late 1920s the story was real for them. And it was something that they really felt they were wrestling with. So in the early 1950s, under Stalinism, there was a small coterie of Catholic activists who really believed that they were relitigating the modernist crisis and that they had a chance to uh, bring back and do right by Max Saunier and um, by Blondel and and folks who had been you know thrown to the wolves my humble opinion, by Pope Pius X. (laughs) So all that by way of saying that Franco-Polish intellectual exchanges weren't just an academic exercise for them. This was a way for them of finding meaning and potentially creating a role for themselves in a situation that politically, let's face it, was very bleak and frankly also quite violent and criminal uh, on a mass level for folks not lucky enough to join these fairly narrow circles in the late 40s and early 1950s. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. That's really interesting. You know, um, j- just to revisit what you opened this answer with of that this originally was sort of the setup, the prelude of the, um, of the, maybe your, was it a dissertation, right? Um, and then it ended up being the full book. And I can see that there was just a massive amount of material here, but it doesn't feel confusing or unwieldy. I mean, there's certain characters that really come, that really, I think, come to life and that really kind of anchor the book. Um, and I'm going to ask you about a couple of them in particular, but before I do that, I wanted to to ask you, was there any one figure, one of these, you know, they're mostly all male Catholic intellectuals, Polish, mostly Polish, French, um, who was your temptation that you, who, who provided for you um, a temptation that you might always be tempted to veer irresistibly into just more and more details about his life, you know, that it was going to be turned into a book about one of these characters. Because I was, I was struck by how much you managed to really have it be a communal story every which way there really isn't, you know, there isn't one key protagonist. There's a lot of merit, you know, Maritain, Monier, um, and some of the Polish figures who are new for me. But was there a figure here who just kept and kept and kept drawing you in and you thought, no, this is a book about a network, not a figure? So I uh, thank you for the compliment. I love the way you put it. And for me, that is a mark of success right there. So thank you for uh, for telling me that that it really worked out that I didn't excessively spotlight any one figure. I was very much afraid throughout, and and here's a big, actually big difference between the dissertation and, and what became Catholics on the barricades. I was afraid that, uh, individuals, first off, that this would be too Polish a story. So I made a point of making it more and more French in a way that I hope was successful, although I think probably I could have made it even more French. All of my readers for the press were East Europeanists, which puts you in a little bit of a tricky position when it comes to really doing the uh, West-East transnational history. But I, for example, made a choice of... of, um, 
giving all the names in English from both the French and the Polish. So I tried to be even-handed. Now, as far as the actual figures are concerned, some of them went on to be really, really famous. And some of them have been basically forgotten on the Polish side. So someone like Wojciech Kętrzyński, who comes up as one of the main ideologues for that uh, soon-to-be and then Stalinist Catholic journal in Poland after World War II, Today and Tomorrow, Jutro. I knew almost nothing about him aside from what I read of his published words in that journal and in some of the other contemporary journals. And then I discovered this uh, massive trove of correspondence in uh, the archives of the journal Esprit, in uh, Lower Normandy, this wonderful, the EMEC archives that, that French intellectual historians occasionally have the pleasure of going back to. And I, on a lark, decided to try to visit the successor archive of uh, the Pax organization. The, it's a really a marginal institution in, in Polish society these days, but there was no archive to speak of, except there was one man whose phone number I had because I knew another scholar, uh, Mikołaj Kunicki, who, who wrote a very good biography of uh, Bolesław Piasecki, the founder of Pax, who gave me this number. And, and I thought, okay, I'll call him and I'll see. And he just let me in and let me peruse the correspondence. And I found I mean, nobody had read this stuff, and I don't know if anybody can get it, get in now, frankly, because the man retired. So a lot of figures became much more prominent in the story whom I wouldn't have expected. If you'd asked me you know, 20 years ago, you'd told me I was going to write a book like this, I would have said, well, so it'll be a book about the man who became pope and the man who became prime minister, because that's who people care about. And that's also where we can get a lot of information. And then there are a few other figures, right? Like Jerzy Turowicz, who on the Polish side, who was the longtime editor of that prominent uh, weekly journal, Tygodnik Powszechny, the Universal Weekly. On the French side, Maritain is easy in the sense also, uh, aside from being extraordinarily I mean, I'm, who am I talking to, right? You're, you're one of the foremost Maritain scholars. So we know a lot about Maritain because there are a lot of sources out there. You might have to do the legwork and go and find them, but they're there. With Mounier, aside from his published stuff, it's been very tricky to get at, uh, uh, at the, the story beneath the surface, I think. And that was exciting for me because I think in some ways, even though I really wanted the book to be a long arc from the late 19th century into the end of the 1950s, I feel like it became a book about Mounier in a lot of ways. It is a book, it's, it's, it's an international history of Mounier's reception in some ways that takes Poland as a case study. And I don't know that it necessarily reads that way, but it feels to, to, to someone else who picks up the book, it feels that way to me. And I'm okay with that. Uh, I maybe would want others. Now, of course, the, the book came out a couple of years ago, so I have the benefit of hindsight. And I think I really wish more folks paid attention to the broader implications of revolution. In other words, that it's not just about the 40s and the 50s, but in part is because I myself was seduced by those years, because it seems so strange to me that both nationalism and Marxism would present themselves, a hybrid of the two, as ways for Catholics to define a revolutionary third way uh, in the wake of the Second World War, right? More than anti-fascism, but actually actually absorbing certain elements of pre-World War II fascism. So to go back to your original question, the famous people were the ones I was worried about. And for that reason, I kind of ran away from uh, Karol Wojtyła, the future John Paul II, in my dissertation. Uh, the, the chapter about him in the book, that's only in the book. And I actually could have put in a lot more and chose not to, because I really didn't want to get into his career as a, as a prelate. Uh, and you know, for better, or for worse, uh, the readers can judge for themselves if I did okay there. But at the end of the day, I'm glad that I was able to recover the stories of a lot of folks like Kentrinsky, who, you know, would have been, I think, completely forgotten if if someone hadn't looked up that, that massive trove of correspondence in the successor archives of Pax. 
Yes. Oh, I can just imagine that glorious feeling of being just invited in and, you know, welcome to peruse. That's just a wonderful gift for a scholar. Um, let, I, this is a perfect moment to transition to what I thought was really the key ter- term of your book. So you mentioned you see this book in one, in some sense, as a sort of reception, Polish history reception of Monier. Um, and I, you know, really think personalism is the key is a key term of the book, um, a- along with revolution. And I wondered if you might just, if we might together talk a bit about that term for readers who might not be, I mean, I think everyone's heard the term, um, but there's a particular like set of contestations in 20th century Catholicism about that. I thought that you really did a nice job, not exactly, you know, offering a philosophical definition, but you really got into, I think, the longings and the kind of spiritual yearnings um, that that term held for so many of these Polish and French Catholic intellectuals by Monier, and then also the ways in which that term was so flexible and malleable that it really could contain within it, you know, sort of um, absolutely far right Stalinist kind of politics too. And I wonder, so I wonder for our listeners, if you might just in a couple of sentences, say what that term meant, what, what that term essentially kind of held for these Catholics. And is it something inherent to the term that makes it so infinitely flexible? And if so, you know, infinitely flexible to contain sort of Marxism, left, you know, leftist ideals and, and far right nationalism, or, um, and, and if so, is it sort of um, outworn its usefulness? Do you think that term is still a politically theologically, spiritually useful term in any sense now. I, I couldn't believe how many different political hopes that term contained and how much it animated such a wide range of political positions um, for Catholics. So yeah, I thought that was a really, really fascinating kind of personalisms, um, Catholic personalisms and the revolutions. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks. If you could just reflect on that a bit for us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I, it's, it's hard not to start with the quotation from Maritain that there are so many personalisms that the word is effectively meaningless, right? So I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But but I am struck. You pose your question beautifully. I, I will maybe pull out two elements which were right next to each other in your question and for the uninitiated will seem completely ludicrous together, right? Far right and Stalin. And yet effectively, both of those ideologies, camps, political constellations, of course, taking very different forms in different times and places, can be contained within personalism. And personalism needn't be political at all, or it could be completely political. I think for me, the the process of thinking about that word, and ultimately, you know, I, I wrote, I've written a lot in Polish, or rather published a lot in Polish about personalism. I'm a little bit more comfortable talking about personalism without caveats in Polish, because the conversation in the Polish Academy looks very different. That's one reason why I pivoted to revolution so much when I was writing Catholics on the barricades. Because how, I, so can you tell us a bit how it's different? Just just to interrupt you quickly, I'm really interested. I'm curious about that. Sure. Well, so so to I mean I I I, I can elaborate a lot. I think that historiographically, I feel like I came into the profession at a moment when personalism was bubbling beneath the surface as a term of art used across different fields. It's not like nobody had ever written about personalism. There's, of course, extensive literature across dozen languages about the personalism, even before we get into what the person is, whether it's, you know, Boethius, <laughs> Thomas Aquinas, etc. Arguably, right, the literature on personalism is half of any university library, depending on how you conceptualize it. In the Polish academic tradition, there's a very focused conversation. There is the insider baseball Catholic theology conversation, which was alive and well, especially because most of Catholic theology as an academic discipline in communist Poland was located physically within the walls of the one um, 
Catholic University of Lublin, which lasted the entire communist period, right? It's the only Catholic university for the entire duration of the communist period behind the Iron Curtain. In the 80s, there was another institution that was opened. Uh, that That's a different story, uh, a little bit in terms of what it brought to the table intellectually. But there's a self-contained conversation there, which can be traced and integrated into conversations. You basically can see who got a scholarship to go study in Louvain or Leuven, who uh, traveled to uh, and listened to lectures at the Institut Catholique de Paris at this or that time, whether we're talking about just before the war, just after the war, or in the late communist period. Uh, and it, it, it's almost a more personal story where I, I in, in in the Polish Academy I feel like this is this is an exaggeration but you can basically if, if you spend enough time in Poland and have enough uh, time to make phone calls and write emails you can meet everybody and talk to everybody and gather within yourself a sense of what all the conversations are like and that's completely impossible in English or French language historiography right and then we can touch the German the Dutch the Italian so my assumptions were different my assumptions were that I had to find a concept where I was comfortable hanging my hat for the book that I wanted to offer to the widest possible audience across different fields. Because like you said at the beginning, I wanted this to be not just a book about Poland. I wanted it to be a book about France. I wanted it to be about Catholicism. I wanted it to be a, a, an important work of, of modern European intellectual history. Uh, and I hope that I was successful. And in part, I think it's because I decided to pivot away from, uh, from those more insular conversations uh, that were very specific to Polish traditions. And in that sense, you know, revolution for me, and this is something that I find myself, uh, I think it's an important way of, of answering the first part of your question. It's not just about Marxism, to use the word revolution. It's not just about uh, the Bolsheviks and their long political legacy for Central and Eastern Europe in the 20th century. It's uh, a way of understanding something that you've written about ex extensively, which is what modernity means and a, 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 a complex, multifocal wrestling with modernity within a religious framework, how to reconcile piety and modernity, that it doesn't have to be linear, right? And, and so the revolution literally, there's a, there's a notion of bending of time to it for me, which I could have elaborated more in the book. I, I kick myself sometimes for not doing a sort of serious epistemology somewhere <laughs> early on in the book. But I, I don't think I would have been a different book if I had done that. That being said, uh, that helps to understand how the successor generations to the folks who first started thinking about how to import into Poland and then export back out of Poland to other parts of the globe. And, and I mean, if we get to the end of the 20th century, that includes Latin America, includes sub-Saharan Africa. In the middle of the 20th century, it was still very much a France-centered, but really Francophone, broadly understood conversation. So Switzerland and Belgium, uh, with, with Italy sort of coming slowly into the mix. And that conversation really, for me, involved... Uh, thinking both in terms of tropes that have become almost maybe a kind of a commonplace in English language historiography, neither, neither right nor left. There's the classic term uh, that, that Zeb Sternhell, the late Zeb Sternhell reused when, when thinking about fascism in uh, the long arc of, of modern French history. But of course, you know, we typically, if someone, if you just say the word fascism, most people think you're talking about the political right. And for that reason, I ran away early on from left-right distinctions. As your question suggests, there's too much in common uh, ideologically. And, in, and I got to say also, you know, seeing the mass violence of the middle of the 20th century through the lens of an academic historian also who teaches this stuff all the time. I have a bread and butter lecture course on modern Central and Eastern Europe. The extreme left and the extreme right have done way too much of the same things uh, on a, a mass scale. And I mean, we see this. We see more of this recurring in, in, in uh Russia's invasion of Ukraine today, right, where folks sometimes don't know exactly which terminology to use, where Putin, the ex-KGB guy, is a leader of global fascism. But all that by way of saying, 
I don't think that these terms have lost their currency in the 21st century. For me, uh, there's a moment that I wanted to explore, a set of generations that thought they had it figured out where they could not just uh, be opportunistic about nationalism and Marxism uh, opening a door to reinventing Catholicism and its place in the world, but they actually felt like there was a boon in the end. And Mounier, for example, you know that visit to Poland in 1946 that I write about extensively in the book, he really thought that it was fantastic that the most Catholic country in Europe was also, as he put it, going socialist, and that this was an opportunity that Poles would be, I forget exact, his exact phrasing, but basically betraying history if they were to surrender to Russophobia. These are the, these are the lines from the article that he wrote for Esprit when he came back from Poland in, in, in June of 1946. So uh, for that reason, I would acknowledge, and when I teach this book, I talk about where left and right fit in, but I think the concepts help us to move beyond that. And they also plug into the broader conversation. Uh, yeah, I think that's actually really interesting that using these concepts like personalism that contain multitudes, it actually keeps us closer to the complexity and the ambivalence on the ground. Um, so it's it's actually in a way more precise than some using language like left and right. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, okay, think this is also sort of asking you to dig in a little deeper or unpack for our listeners some other kind of broader philosophical words. I'm going to read something from your introduction. Um, I really thought I loved your introduction, right? And this is a little bit when you are, this is connected somewhat to, to your conversation we were just having about personalism. This is your discussion of the human person, the, the human person. Um, so you're talking about um, some of these, you know, these early kind of French Catholic thinkers. Um, and you say that their goal was to reclaim humanism for God, replacing the secular anthropocentric legacy of the Renaissance with what, with what Jacques Maritain called theocentric humanism. Can you tell, can you say a little bit more, tell, let, let, let our listeners hear a bit, what does it mean to reclaim humanism for God? What did it mean for them to reclaim these sort of secular ideologies for God? You know, would you, yeah, help us, help us understand of what, what, what you meant, what you mean by that, or what, what they meant, what you understood them to mean by reclaiming humanism for God, not just updating or becoming, you know, relevant, but up, you know, reclaiming it for God. The theocentric humanism, I think, is really critical for understanding the starting point of the conversation. And plenty of the participants in my story betray that legacy or stray from it. But if you asked point blank, I think no one would have uh, disclaimed it as a central goal. In other words, uh, I mean, I like the way you set up your question again, that not, uh, uh, not updating, but reclaiming for God in the sense that fundamentally the key this, I think, goes also to the question that you posed earlier about what it means to talk about the person, is to think about being made in the image of God and what the implications are for uh, practical ethics, for the ethics of everyday life and how individuals, persons, then associate with one another and form social and political communities and what kind of obligations follow from that. So reclaiming for God is, I mean, one can look at it in a few different ways. There's a kind of crusading righteousness implicit to that language. But I don't think that that's the the main, uh, that, that may even be a little bit of a, of, of a kind of a, uh, a distraction in some sense relative to what I think is the main point here, which is the revolution that I write about in the book, uh, it, it went off the rails. I don't think that anyone can read the book and, and think that what whether we're talking about the nationalists or the Marxists or those who combine both, uh, that, that they were successful. But one thing that I think was really a lasting legacy of the attempts at Catholic revolution that were at least claiming 
whether through lip service or or in a more authentic way, to be putting God at the center of the understanding of humanity was this sense of the, being made in the image of God as determining ethics. And that could be dangerous depending on the context, because for so long, I mean, again, you, you've written about this as well, for so long in the history of the Catholic Church, that meant exclusion. That meant saying who was and who wasn't a person. And I, I remember reading uh, the future Pope John Paul II's grad thesis that he wrote in Rome in the 40s for the first time and thinking, okay, he draws really firm lines here. You're in or you're out. So personhood was not uh, a universal Let's call it a based. It's not a biopolitical universalism. No, personalism was very much about uh, buying into salvation doctrine and buying in through baptism and through the practice of the sacraments. And that if you don't do that, I'm sorry. And that changed. That changed as a consequence of the failure. I think, at least in large part, of the story that I tell, that the failure of so many of the people that I write about in the book, or at least the transformation of those people, is what led them to understand that putting God at the center didn't mean just considering uh, Roman Catholics or practicing baptized Roman Catholics to be deserving of dignity or uh, inclusion in, in, in political and social community, but in fact, as a, 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 a centerpiece, but just part of a pluralistic matrix. And I mean, you've written about how this looked from Jacques Maritain's standpoint, but I, I think that you can chart a similar course in some cases, very ugly, with a lot of not 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 nice stuff happening along the way, and real moral tension, I think, along the way too. I mean, I see this with Tadeusz Mazowiecki, where there was an awakening for him uh, to inclusion of different communities, which I think some of it was never fully resolved. And, and other things, I can say, basically involve flipping, where if you're Polish and French Catholics uh, on the left even though I don't like that term, but broadly identifying with the political left after World War II, it's very easy to come out and say, well, the Germans are not persons. And there's an empirical foundation for that, but more generally, look, clearly they're not practicing the sacraments. And then 30 years later, when we talk about Franco-German or Franco-German reconciliation was earlier, but in the 70s, Polish-German reconciliation, that involves a certain revaluation based on this newly ethical understanding of God and his implications for how people relate to each other. So that's maybe a more philosophical answer than no, you wanted. That was great. But- I mean, that was great. I mean, I really saw the heart of your book as almost giving us a biography of those tensions, a biography of those aspirations and sort of some of the tragic unfoldings of those aspirations. Um, because it's not so easy to figure how how that would look to reclaim something for God and not have it be exclusionary. And so it, it was, yeah, I think that was, was a wonderful way to think about um, what you illustrated in your book. And I see our, our time is going so quickly. So I'm going to ask you, I want to ask you two last questions and we'll just have to move through them a little more quickly. So one of um, the other things that I loved in the book was, you know, seeing together, you know, in a shared network, some of the well-known figures we've mentioned, Monnier, Maritain, the man who became Pope John Paul II, Um, And then, but in being introduced to these sort of minor characters who were totally obscure to me, some of these Polish Catholic intellectuals who I think no one in the English speaking readership had heard of until your book. But I also loved seeing the names of now very well-known people like Czesław Miłosz, the poet in your book, whose name is very, very well known um, as a poet, but who really is not so well known as connected with these Catholic networks. And when I did my research, his name definitely came up in as part of the Maritime Network, but I never really knew until your book how or what was the connection and 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 where were they gathering and, and why. And I find his writing on the relationship between poetry and politics so beautiful in this period. Um, And just through him, you know, I have this sense that the kind of poetics of some of the Polish um, intellectuals 
was different than the French. You know, um, you know, he has this line. I think I quote in my book. Miwosh um, has a has a line of something like, you know, if you live through hell's deepest circle, poetry becomes as essential as bread. And so I wonder if you might, you know, tell us a bit more maybe about him or the role of poets um, or poetry in this network that is very, very religious, um, which is not often seen as kind of a poetic thing, you know, very religious and very political. I mean, those are domains of culture that are different from the poetic domain. But I think that poetry, at least for some of the Polish intellectuals, was right there in right in the mix too. Could you say a little bit about that? Maybe just for a couple minutes and then I have another question I want to ask you. It's a big question. So well, I have to be telegraphic here. Well, well, so the, the easiest answer to give, Brenna, is that John Paul II was a poet too. And that is very telling in a lot of ways. Obviously, he's a, he's a slightly younger contemporary of, of Czesław Miłosz. But what they shared was this sense of being reforged through war, through their experience of life in occupied Poland, and how that impacted the intellectual influences that had been uh, affecting them, and Miłosz much more so, because he was a, a very had a young start in cultural and intellectual life, and I think maybe this is what you were referencing in the late 1930s. He was part of a circle which I give some attention to in chapter one of the book, which was basically a Thomist circle, unofficial, informal, and yet everyone knew it was there. And it was possibly more important than anything happening at the Catholic University of Lublin. And it was based at a center for the blind run by Franciscan nuns in the forests north of Warsaw. And that's where Jacques Maritain, I think it's not the only place he visited when he went to Poland in 1934, but it meant a lot to him. He maintained contacts with a a number of different figures whom he met there. And I think in some sense, more importantly, many of those figures would reflexively go back and influence the French world. This is something we actually, I, I'm going to take the opportunity and say one thing that didn't come up earlier, which is that partly how thinking about Polish reception of French thought then translates into re-exportation or re-importation by the French and Francophones in Western Europe of uh, thoughts and and literature and cultural products that have been uh, incubated in Poland. That is a really interesting process because, of course, Miłosz became a figure in French intellectual life in the 1950s after he defected. Uh, he wrote The Captive Mind in France. He published extensively among, above all, émigré publishing houses, but he was quite a presence uh, in, in, in Paris, and mm-hmm. he would yes, remain... Yes, his name and- comes up all the time, you know. Well, that's the it. Materials. Exactly. And, and I mean, he's, he wasn't the only one. I am writing about another French thinker, excuse me, a Polish exile thinker named Maria Winowska right now. Very different trajectory. But like Miłosz, really became intellectually formed in the Thomist circles in the forest north of Warsaw at the end of the 1930s. To your question about poetry, though, the poetry obviously is a brilliant way of exporting as long as it's translated. And Miłosz was so extensively translated that he became, I think, a wonderful vehicle for casting the relationship between uh, aesthetics, poetics, and spirituality and piety in the context of war, totalitarianism, and destruction in a way that few people have been. I mean, there's a reason why he he rose to the stature that allowed him to you know win the Nobel Prize in 1980. But I, I I think that in some ways, and I I would maintain that he was formed crucially by his readings of Maritain. I don't just mean the the book he he translated à travers le désastre. I also mean uh, the the uh, for example you know. Uh, Scholastique, the the thinking on the relationship between and the role of art in an expression of the of the no, accumulated knowledge of how to express God's place in the world. So in that sense, Miłosz is a famous agnostic. Although I, I think some of the best scholarship on him in recent years has precisely centered on where religion fits in for him. It's not that he when he died there was actually a big hullabaloo in Poland about whether he could be buried on consecration 
consecrated ground or not, which aside from the politicization of a, of a major figure, which unfortunately happens all the time in post-communist Eastern Europe, I thought was scandalous because it just made no sense. Miłosz was a friend to Catholicism in ways that most present political figures in Eastern Europe couldn't possibly understand, precisely because he was critical of the Enlightenment. He was critical of rational modernity. He was deeply critical of uh, the impacts that of I mean, what he understood to be very sort of uh, overreaching, creeping secularization. And I mean, I, I disagree with some of his interpretations, but it, it's impossible to understand his poetry without this kind of a project of redefining modernity and reclaiming modernity in a kind of theocentric way, to go back to your previous question, whether he would follow, because he didn't like religious institutions, but I would contend that he was a deeply religious thinker. Right, right. That is interesting. I mean, I could almost imagine a fascinating article or little slim volume about the role of the translation of poetry in kind of Catholic or spiritual, you know, spirituality in quotes of, of this nexus between politics, spirituality, um, totalitarianism. Cause my, I, you could tell a very similar story about Gabriela Mistral, the Chilean poet in the 1930s and forties, who was doing something, you know, something similar in the French and Spanish translations of her poems responding to totalitarianism were really getting circulated all over the world. Maybe there's something about poetry that kind of travels quicker. Um, yes, certainly than other sorts of academic prose. So well, that's also fun. poetic texts actually intersect in places where their authors were not able to go. So in that sense, they took the poetry could also take on a life of its own. That's partly what makes it so exciting and also so difficult to document. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Well, we're, um, I, I would love, you know, as my concluding sentence, we'll only have a, a minute or so, sadly, to talk about it. But um, your book so was published in 2018, and so much has happened, um, especially happened, um, I mean, really, really dramatic things have happened in the world, even since you were certainly writing on the book, but even in the couple of years since it's come out. Um, I wonder if you might even pick one of the things that have has happened, including, you know, the invasion of the Ukraine, but also even thinking of the uncovering, you know, the reckoning with violence that we're ha- that's taking place in the Catholic Church the, from the Me Too movement, sex abuse crisis, to, you know, COVID, the invasion of Ukraine. I mean, major political and real religious events have taken place in the last couple of years. If you might pick one of them, is there something um, that has happened in the world in recent years that has made you look differently at your sources that you might um, now kind of see what they were doing a little bit differently, or you might um, maybe have done something differently, or you have new questions that have come out of this really tumultuous past couple of years that we have have been through. And you, yeah, so maybe you can even just pick pick one thing that comes to mind, and then we'll wrap up. Okay, so let me say that. When Pope Francis became Pope, I think like many, <laughs> like many at the time, I was writing a book about the Catholic Church, among other things, under the impression that we were living a moment of pastoral revolution, in some ways a fulfillment of the best promises and the best trends that had come under uh, John Paul II. And yet, I think that there's a lot less optimism now, in part because I think it's 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 crucial. It's it's fantastic. Right now, I'm in in, in Montreal. I'm in Canada, and the reckoning with the the residential schools and the abuse, systematic abuse of First Nations uh, children, has has really dominated Canadian thinking about the Roman Catholic Church. Francis is doing something, but it takes forever. You know, that old phrase, pensiamo in secoli, about the prelates of the Catholic Church that, you know, we think in centuries is the best excuse for anything. But by the same token, it strikes me that it makes it very difficult to think optimistically about the story that I've told. Fundamentally, like I said uh, a couple different times, this is a story about failure, but failure that opened the door for something I think really important and authentic. And that is this, this sense of a kind of pastoral message that could help to guide a more ethical life. And I'll be honest with you, I think that 
If you look at Poland today, 21st century Poland, most of the resurgence that you see in terms of some of the concepts that I'm writing about in this book, whether it's the person or revolution, is among folks who maybe wouldn't use the phrase integralism, but would be broadly identified with it. I thought about this all the time while Donald Trump was president. Prominent Catholic thinkers, uh, I'm not going to bother with names because it would be a longer conversation, but many prominent Catholic thinkers, including prominent academics in the States who've really played a role, I think, in trying to uh, bring Roman Catholicism into alliance with the kind of far-right coalition. And here, I, and again, I don't like the terms left and right, but but the global fascist coalition that was in part bankrolled by Vladimir Putin. You, know, you read headlines just a few days ago about Christian nationalism as an undergirding ideological firmament for, uh, for Putin. There's a point there, and it's something that you see in Putin's alliance with the Russian Orthodox Church. How broadly does that extend? I'm afraid it extends much more broadly than one would like, which is to say, to bring this all together, that whether we look at these tendencies that I'm writing about in the book as born of uh, extreme exclusionary nationalism or of totalitarian versions of, uh, of, of revolutionary socialism, fundamentally, the extremes led to, I mean, apologies for mass violence, if not actual outright affirmative endorsements of regimes that were carrying out violence against their citizens. And this was done in the name of trying to achieve a Catholic modernity. So one thing that I, I mean, so many things worry me these days, but if you want my, my sort of final word for the moment in terms of something that I fear for the Catholic Church in the world today, it's that the slow processes of reconciliation that in which Francis is involved, that he's steering, that he's um, you know, endorsing are just drowned out by uh, more horizontal, lateral networks of support and engagement in what fundamentally could be, I think, the coming of, of very, very dark times, uh, not just for one part of the world, but for the world as a whole. And having written so much about Catholics, it's, it's, yeah, it's painful for me to think that the lessons have been so perverted in some ways, uh, not by everyone, obviously, because there are beautiful things going on, but... But it's hard from the standpoint of April 2022 to be optimistic. Right. And I think that, um, you know, the phrase that you use, feeling worried, not just for the church or not just for one country, but for the world at large. I think once you dig into this longer history in the way that you do, it is a truly global story. I mean, the networks that you highlight between, you know, Poland and France, but also um, you can just see that they were those networks. This was just a little case study into truly what we might think of as a global network now. Um, so thank you so much for your book. And those of us who feel confused by the resurgence of the global far right and the sometimes alliance between Catholicism and those political impulses who might feel like this is bubbling up out of nowhere, I think would really find your book absolutely illuminating, providing a much longer and deeper narrative to what we're seeing today. Um, so thank you so much for this beautiful, inspiring, in some senses tragic, but also I think deeply humane and in parts beautiful, um, showing the the wide range of Catholicism and hence of kind of the human experience um, in the 20th century. So thank you so much for this research, this book. Um, I recommend it to all of our listeners, Piotr Kosicki's Catholics on the Barricades, Poland, France, and Revolution, 1891 to 1956, published by Yale University Press. Piotr, thank you so much for speaking with us this afternoon. Thank you so much, Brenna, and thanks everyone for listening. 